Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 39, Tsar Alexei, Rebellion and Schism. Hi everyone, and thanks for listening in. Okay, last time out we wrapped up the reigns of the first Romanovs, Mikhail and Philaret. And then we got to meet Mikhail's son Alexei, looked at what kind of man he was, big, affable, God-fearing, like falcons, and then covered off the early part of his reign through the lens of Russian domestic events. This week we'll continue to look at what happened on the domestic front, starting with further bouts of civil unrest, a couple of riots and a rebellion, and then we'll take a detailed look at probably one of the most important events to have occurred in Russia during the 17th century, the schism within the Russian Orthodox Church, or, as it was and is known in Russia, the Raskala. There are no announcements or messages this week, so let's just get straight on and do some history of Russia. So, it's 1650, and Tsar has dealt with the salt riot and its aftermath, sidelined his former chief minister Boris Morozov, replacing him with his equally venal and corrupt father-in-law Ilya Miloslavsky, revised and updated Ivan the Terrible Sedebnik with his own law code, and even found time to reorganise the Russian army, more of which next time. His wife, Maria Miloslavskaya, has given birth to two children, Dmitri in 1648 and Yevdokia in 1650. And while sadly Dmitri died aged just 14 months, other sons and daughters, 13 in total, will be arriving on the scene at fairly frequent intervals. There are no external threats on the horizon, the economy is starting to recover, and the Tsar has plenty of time to do the things he really loves, praying and hunting. What could possibly go wrong? Well, first of all, in 1649, the grain harvest failed in Sweden, 
and, as had happened several times in the past, the Swedes, who were still at loggerheads with Poland-Lithuania, asked the Russian government for help. Sumilo Slavsky, with a nod from Alexei, hurriedly arranged for his agents in the north of the country to buy up as much grain as they could and arrange for it to be shipped across the Baltic. All of which caused a massive shortage of grain, which saw those prices in northern Russia for wheat, barley and rye go through the roof, subsequently causing the price of bread to skyrocket. In mid-March of 1650, inhabitants of the two largest northern cities, Novgorod and Peskov, had had enough. And even though the insurgents must have been aware of the new punishments for going against the established order, in both cities, merchants' houses were ransacked and government administrators were forced out of office and replaced with more sympathetic officials. In Novgorod, the Metropolitan, a man called Nikon, railed against the protesters from the pulpit, but afterwards, as he left the church, he was attacked and beaten by a hostile crowd. And when Moscow sent a boyar official, Solovtsov, to sort things out, he was arrested and imprisoned for several days. But Nikon refused to be cowed, Solovtsov was released, the protests started to run out of steam, and by early April, the old guard were back in charge. But, in the meantime, government troops had been dispatched to both Novgorod and Peskov, with orders from the Tsar to sort things out. And though everything was pretty much back to normal when the soldiers arrived, over the next few days, the ringleaders and their main supporters were arrested. Several were executed, a larger number were flogged, and over 200 were exiled to either Siberia or the far Arctic North. Okay, so I've just mentioned the word flogged, so let's just examine what that actually meant in 17th century Russia. And you can skip forward for 30 seconds here if you'd rather not know. So the victim was tied to a post or a triangular frame, stripped and then lashed with a special kind of whip called the knout or knout, it's K-N-O-U-T. Actually, in Russian, it's just K-N-U-T, knut, which simply means whip. The Russian knout came in a variety of different forms, but typically it was a long whip with a metal ring at the end, to which were attached strips of wire or toughened leather, very similar to, but longer than the cat and nine tails, which was used back in the day in the UK and other European countries, mainly for military corporal punishment. So 100 or 120 lashes with the knout was the equivalent of a death sentence, and even 30 lashes could do serious damage. And with the specially extended great knout, 20 blows could kill, with death often being attributed to a broken spine. Okay, you can come back out now. So, with the situations in Novgorod and Peskov back under control, Alexei's attention was next drawn to matters of the religious kind, as in 1652, Joseph, the fifth or sixth patriarch of Moscow, depending on how you count your patriarchs, died, which obviously left the position vacant. Now, a bit of background is required here. Remember in the last episode, where right at the beginning of Alexei's reign, there had been a couple of campaigns orchestrated by the Tsar and his ministers to improve the state of Russia's morals, 
There was too much drinking, smoking, swearing and general rival behaviour for Alexei's liking. And, secondly, they wanted to keep non-Orthodox foreigners under control and confined as much as possible to the German quarter. Well, both campaigns were driven by two prominent movements, which had been active for a number of years within the Russian Orthodox Church. The first of these reform movements, the Zealots of Piety, what a great name, were fanatical about the improvement of morals, and the second group, which didn't have a specific name, were more interested in bringing the rituals and texts used in the Russian church back in line with the Greek Orthodox practices. Oh, and this second group didn't like anything foreign very much. Well, apart from the Greek Orthodox Church. Alexei, as we've seen, was a big fan of both movements, and his aim was to have a like-minded patriarch who would drive the necessary reforms and get the church's house in order. And the Tsar had heard good things about a particular candidate who, as well as being reform-minded, had stuck to his guns when faced with violent protesters up in Novgorod. And so, after a brief meeting in July 1652, Metropolitan Nikon of Novgorod was appointed as the Patriarch of Moscow, and then later on in the year, the hapless Miloslavsky was booted out, and the new Patriarch also became Alexei's new Chief Minister. So Nikon, who was from a peasant background, had come to the priesthood fairly late in life. He was strikingly tall, at six foot six or nearly two metres, and had a beard to die for. Some said he resembled an Old Testament prophet. He had listened to the Tsar's views and had mostly agreed with them, but, as we'll soon see, he also had his own ideas on how the Orthodox Church should be run, i.e., he wasn't a big fan of the state interfering in ecclesiastical matters, and he was on the side of the reform movement that favoured the Greek Orthodox way of doing things. So far, so good. But the new patriarch also had another side to him, which, added to his views, would make him a difficult character for the Tsar, other clerics, and pretty much everyone else, to be honest, to get along with. He was incredibly arrogant and incredibly single-minded. From the word go, Nikon got to work on reforming the practices of the Russian church, which soon alienated one of his main reform-minded followers, stroke rivals, Archpriest Avarkum. So Avarkum was on the same page as Nikon, to begin with, but as time went on, the Archpriest grew increasingly fed up with the way in which Nikon was going about doing things. You see, the Patriarch's method of dealing with reform was autocratic, to say the least. He tended to work in isolation, without consulting his Russian peers, although he did hold a number of discussions with members of the Greek clergy, and then he would come up with what he thought was best for everyone and present it all as a done deal. These differences in style, however, soon turned to differences in substance, and soon both men were on opposing sides of the same reform-minded argument, if that makes any sense. Nikon wanted to strictly adhere to the rituals of the Greek Orthodox Church, whilst Avarkum's view was that the Greek Church was discredited because back in the 15th century it had been open to a reunion with Rome. 
The archpriest, therefore, was totally against Nikon's reforms, announced and introduced in 1653, that, amongst other things, advocated a change to the spelling of Jesus' name, stated that the sign of the cross should be made with three fingers instead of two, that the word hallelujah was to be pronounced three times instead of two, and that the direction of procession around the church was to be changed from clockwise to anti-clockwise. Now all of this may come across as trivial to the modern or secular mind, but in 17th century Russia, whether you were for the reforms or against, was of critical spiritual importance. And for Avakum and his followers, it was a matter of conscience that they were prepared to risk their freedom and careers for, which was just as well, because they were all slung into prison by the Tsar. Alexei, who by now was preoccupied, preoccupied with preparations for war against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, wasn't 100% sure, but came down on the side of his patriarch on condition that the changes were ratified by a church synod, which they were, twice, in 1564 and 1566. And the net effect of this series of events was twofold. First, the reforms caused a split or schism of the Russian church, with those who supported the reforms being seen as the official Russian Orthodox Church, and those who didn't becoming known as the old believers, with each side condemning the other as heretics. And secondly, due to his success with implementing the religious changes, and also due to the fact that the Tsar was away with his army on the Polish front, and had left him in charge, Nikon became even more arrogant, insatiable and headstrong. In effect, he had become corrupted or tainted by power. Both in public documents and in private letters, he was permitted to use the sovereign's title, which he did, often and with relish, a fact which started to create resentment among the boyars and other ministers who were starting to wonder just who did this bloke think he was? But unperturbed or ignorant of the effect he was having on those around him, Nikon then started taking steps to achieve his long-held dream of a permanent separation between state and church. He believed that when separated, both institutions could work together in harmony as long as the church was seen as preeminent, stating, There are two swords of authority, that is, the spiritual and the secular and that the supreme bishop is higher than the Tsar. But all of this was dangerous talk. By the summer of 1658, his detractors at court had managed to get word to the Tsar that all was not well in Moscow, and perhaps, you know, just a suggestion, Alexei needed to return to the capital and check out what was going on. And eventually the penny dropped. Alexei suspected that Nikon was out of control and that the reforms plus the moves to separate church from state were all part of a bigger plan to strengthen the patriarch's power and authority. So when Alexei travelled back to Moscow later in 1658, Nikon, suspecting nothing, arranged for a mass to celebrate the Tsar's return to the capital. The only problem was that Alexei didn't show up. And realising that he had been publicly snubbed, the Patriarch stormed out of the cathedral and locked himself away in the New Jerusalem Monastery, some 25 miles or 40 kilometres west of Moscow. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Patriarch, thinking himself indispensable, persuaded both himself and his closest followers that it would only be a matter of time before the Tsar would come to his senses and beg him to return to Moscow. But that never happened. For 18 months, the two men remained estranged and the conflict was left unresolved, which, when you think about it, must have been down to either political or personal reasons, because both Alexei and Nikon were in complete agreement regarding the reforms. Then in February 1660, and at the Tsar's direction, a synod was held in Moscow to decide the patriarch's fate and get on with electing a replacement. But whilst consensus was reached on the latter, the synod remained divided on what should happen to Nikon, with only some of the clergy believing that he should forfeit both his archiepiscopal rank and his priestly orders, leaving the cautious, God-fearing Alexei uncertain as to how to proceed. In the end, this uncertainty and or intransigence on the Tsar's part went on for a further six years, although to be fair, most of his time and energy during that, during that period were wrapped up with wars against Poland and then Sweden. But we'll get to that detail next time. Eventually, though, by 1666, the Tsar's mind was clear of the fog of war, and he realised that the boil needed to be lanced. He consulted with almost every contemporary Orthodox scholar, but when no clear resolution was put forward by any of them, he decided to bring things to a head by summoning Nikon to stand trial at a pan-Orthodox synod, or as it became known, the Great Moscow Synod. And as for Nikon, well, maybe a more sensible or prudent man would have dragged his heels at this stage or feigned illness. But he was neither sensible or prudent, and perhaps he saw the synod as finally giving him the opportunity to get the situation and the Tsar back under the church's or his control. And so in December 1666, some sources say 1667, the scene was set for a showdown. On the one side you had Nikon, and on the other were two foreign patriarchs, Paisos of Alexandria and Macarius III of Antioch, plus 13 metropolitans, nine archbishops, five bishops and 32 archimandrites, which is or was a sort of junior bishop. 
According to the limited sources that we have on the Synod, Nikon made a staunch defence of his belief that the Church's authority and power were and ought to be supreme. But perhaps it had time to reflect, and he went on to temper this by stating that his authority and power should apply only to ecclesiastical matters. So a slight back down there from the Patriarch. But this wasn't enough for the Synod's representatives or the Tsar, and on the 12th of December they pronounced Nikon guilty for being in opposition to the Tsar and the whole Russian church. His sentence was the deprivation of all of his sacred offices and functions, and henceforth he was to be known simply as the monk Nikon. And then on the same day, he was ordered to depart for the far northern Ferapontov Monastery, where he would spend the next 15 years in exile. Before the Synod was wrapped up, though, its representatives did two further things. The first was to have Archpriest of Arkham, remember him, brought to them from his prison cell, and then he too was exiled to the Russian Arctic, but not to a monastery. He was to live out the rest of his days in a small, log-framed hut. And then secondly, the Synod further ratified Nikon's reforms of 1653, and just in case anyone was in any way confused, rebranded the old believers as heretics. And so officially, that was that. A new, more compliant patriarch, Joasaphus II, who'd been one of the Synod's representatives, was installed, and from Alexei's point of view, a just conclusion had been reached. But in the real world, inhabited by people across all levels of society, the choice to move seamlessly from crossing yourself with two fingers to crossing yourself with three, and being in a church where the priests progressed anti-clockwise instead of clockwise, were choices that many just couldn't make, and thousands either left for the emptiness of Siberia to openly celebrate their old beliefs, leaving many more to stay where they were and carry on the old ways, if possible, in secret. The rascal or schism still exists in Russia and elsewhere today, and with it there remains a degree of antagonism and tension between the official Russian Orthodox Church and the Old Believers, although on a practical level both sides have agreed to pretty much live and let live. From an ecclesiastic and theological point of view, though, the rascal remains a highly controversial question and one of the most tragic episodes of Russian history. One final point before we move on. Nikon and Avarkum would both outlive Alexei, and so we'll also cover what happened to the both of them in a future episode. And for one of them, it doesn't end well. So with religious matters finally out of the way, and the war in the West being concluded, Alexei, who by 1669 was 40, and settling into late middle age by the standards of the time, was no doubt looking forward to enjoying a bit of peace and quiet. But a series of events would take place in quick succession that would put pay to that illusion. In August 1669, the Tsar's wife, Maria Miloslavskaya, died, only weeks after giving birth to her 13th child, a daughter named Yevtokia, who would die shortly afterwards. 
The Tsar was only just coming to terms with his loss when in January 1670, his son and heir, the 15-year-old Tsarevich Alexei, died, followed in June by the death of his youngest son, Simeon. Apart from the personal tragedy, this left the Romanov dynasty in potentially choppy waters. There were two other sons, but as mentioned in the last episode, neither of them enjoyed particularly strong constitutions, and that's putting it mildly. The youngest of the two, Ivan, was only four, and was already showing signs of being mentally infirm, whilst the eldest, nine-year-old Feodor, was physically disabled, a condition that supposedly had been caused by scurvy. Now, ironically, both sons would outlive their father and would go on to be czars in their own right, but at the time, no one would have bet on that being the outcome. And so, at the urging of his nobles, boyars and clergy, and following the strong advice offered by his new chief minister, Artemon Matveyev, Alexei decided to get married again. For the sake of the dynasty, you understand. To the 20-year-old Natalia Narishkina, a noblewoman of Tartar ancestry, who, by the way, and following the normal custom, just happened to have been brought up in a different household away from her parents. Whose household? Artemon Matveyev's, of course. In time, Alexei and Natalia would go on to have three children, two daughters and a son called Peter. Yes, that Peter, who we will be meeting in a few, couple, no, probably a few episodes' time. But there was to be no immediate honeymoon period for Alexei and Natalia because down in the wild fields of southern Russia, along the Don River, a disaffected Cossack rebel was starting to cause some serious unrest, which, aside from the wars with Poland and Sweden, would represent the most serious threat to Russia's internal security during Alexei's 31-year reign. Stepan Timofeyevich Razin, or Stenka to his friends, first gained notability in the mid-1660s as the leader of a disparate group of Don Cossacks and runaway serfs, who spent most of their time plundering small towns and cities in the Volga Don regions, with the odd murder of a government official or two thrown in for good measure. After a period of time spent as a pirate on the Caspian Sea, which also involved the setting up of a kind of quasi-outlaw settlement in Persia, he returned to southern Russia, but this time at the head of a much larger rebel group, whose ranks had been swelled by disaffected peasants, escaped fugitives, deserters from the armies of both Russia and Poland, and Zaporozhian Cossacks, who viewed their leader, strangely, as some kind of political messiah who would deliver from the evil of Alexei's regime. Something which was driven partly by Razin's appeal and partly by his claim to be acting on behalf of two other people. So the first of these was the Tsarevich Alexei, who apparently hadn't died in 1670, as had been widely reported, except he had. So we're in false Alexei territory here, and the second person was the ex-patriarch Nikon. In May 1670, Razin's forces captured Tsaritsyn, 
which is modern-day Volgograd, and in June, Astrakhan was taken and pillaged during a three-week period, which some observers described as an orgy of blood and debauchery. Next to fall was Saratov and Samara, but at this point, Moscow, suddenly noticing that a large chunk of its territory along the Volga now effectively belonged to the rebels, dispatched an army to stop the rot, and at Simbirsk, Razin suffered his first defeat, and he only just narrowly escaped the Tsar's forces. The failure to capture Simbirsk and the fact that a large number of rebels had either been killed or captured, or captured and then killed, didn't end the rebellion. Proclamations appeared in various cities throughout southern Russia, and word even reached the citizens of Moscow and Novgorod that Razin was on his way to root out the ruling class and establish a Cossack regime. But to all intents and purposes, by this stage, the revolt had run out of steam. Troops and Cossacks loyal to the Tsar now swarmed into the Volga Valley, and in early 1671, Stenka Razin, along with his brother Frol, by now leading only a small number of insurgents, were captured and transported back to Moscow to await their no doubt gruesome fate. Both men were tortured, and then in June 1671, after a short trial, Stenka Razin was declared guilty and put to death by literally being chopped into pieces with an axe. His brother had turned informer at the last minute and therefore escaped any immediate further punishment, but remained in prison and then suddenly, in 1676, he too was executed. OK, on that happy note, that's it for this week. Next time we'll be looking at the various wars that Russia was involved in during Alexei's time in charge. We'll take a peep at the workings of the ominous-sounding secret department. Check out the copper riot, and then finally we'll wrap things up by giving the Tsar his performance appraisal. So until then, and as always, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.